The Ask Anatomist podcast is co-sponsored by the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University and by the American Association for Anatomy. Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious. Today's episode, are you a nervous wreck? I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, an associate professor in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance anything you hear on this podcast. Hello, listeners. Welcome to today's episode, where we'll be talking about the nervous system and multiple sclerosis, or MS. Many people may have heard about or know someone affected by MS. It's a debilitating disease that affects people of all ages, and millions of dollars of research are spent exploring how to treat patients with this. Despite all these efforts and focus on MS research, we still know little about the causes. To discuss some of the research and findings in this field, we have a great interdisciplinary team here to discuss the topic of MS. Would you like to take a moment to introduce yourselves? Hi everyone, my name's David. I'm a National Health and Medical Research Council Fellow, and I'm also supported by MS Research Australia, and I'm a research scientist really interested in MS. Hi everyone, my name's Wafika. I'm a fourth year medical resident and an assistant lecturer in anatomy at Monash University. Hi everyone, my name's David Homewood. I'm a medical student in my final year at the University of Melbourne. I've just done a research project looking into MS and possible regenerative therapies. MS is the most common demyelinating disease of the central nervous system, affecting more than 2 million people worldwide which is something like half the population of Melbourne and has serious morbidity and mortality. So in my research, when I started off, the first question I had was, what is multiple sclerosis? Multiple sclerosis is an inflammatory condition that causes damage to nerve tissues throughout the body. It's a very complex disease that's not entirely understood, but to understand MS better, we first have to look at the tissues that it affects, namely the neurological or nervous system. We typically divide the nervous system into two components, a central portion and a peripheral portion or distal portion. So we call those the central nervous system or CNS and the peripheral nervous system or PNS. The central nervous system houses the brain, the brain stem, and the spinal cord. The peripheral nervous system takes information out from the central nervous system to the rest of the body or collects information from the rest of the body and brings it into the central nervous system. That way we get information coming in and going out, but it's all being coordinated through that central nervous system. The nerve is composed of a variety of different parts. And if we think about it globally when we're referring to the nervous system, it's much like a computer, which is a complicated network of wires that are sending signals across it. I think that the analogy is useful insofar as you have inputs and you have outputs, there's afferent signals going in, which are then being processed by the computing organ, the brain, which then decides how to move an arm or say a word or have some sort of action. And then that's performed through an efferent motor 
nerve. That's a really good, I guess, initial idea. If you imagine, I know this sounds weird, but a computer with a bunch of spaghetti <laughs> coming out of it. And the computer is your brain and spinal cord. And the spaghetti is all of this peripheral nervous system. And it goes and interacts with everything in your body. So it's taking information in and out from this big computing center that's the brain and the spinal cord. So that meme that we see on the internet, identify this nerve in a mountain of spaghetti, is an accurate representation of anatomy. Well, you could think about it that way, I suppose, yeah. I think what both of you highlighted is that there's two types of neurons, that afferent or sensory information coming in from the periphery to the central nervous system, and that efferent or motor going out from the central nervous system to cause an action. Some of these motor actions, though, we can control, like movement of our arms or legs, and some we have little control over, such as motility of our gut or movement of food through our GI tract. So what that means is that there's information from the world that affects the brain, and then your response affects your surroundings. Is that right? That's a great summary. So nerves are made up of cells as well, called neurons. Could we discuss what makes up a neuron? So the neuron is comprised of different parts. The neuron has dendrites, which are essentially collecting that information, and they're bringing it into the powerhouse of the cell, known as the cell body. And then that information or that signal is transmitted through this cable known as the axon. At the furthest point of this cable, there's something known as an axon terminal. So that information is translated into code which the next neuron can understand. Yeah, so a, a neuron has these parts, the dendrite, the cell body, and the axon. And the confusing thing about nerve cells is they're all hooked up together. The way that they're connected is that the dendrites receive connections from the axon of another neuron. So it's kind of like this continuous loop, except for the ones that go out to your tissues in your body. So within the brain and spinal cord, it's like this continuous loop. And then the stuff that comes out, it goes to your every other tissue in your body. And the way that the communication works is that the coverings or the things that make up the skin of the neuron, which we call the membrane, is electrically charged. So it's got an electrical charge. And when these little bits connect to each other, they release chemicals called neurotransmitters that change the electrical charge. And that's the signal that's being interpreted as we transfer information around. So as a whole bunch of neurons might talk to one, they'll send these chemicals. It'll convert onto the neuron's dendrites as electrical charge. And then that neuron will shoot down another electrical charge, which will go on and talk to other things. So then what you're saying is that from the central nervous system, it could be a power generating thing down in Hazelwood. They put in a bit of electricity, which changes the voltage, which then affects what's happening in the city because there's this transmission between the central area and then the peripheral area. Is that, is that, is that right? Yeah, I guess if you think about it like Hazelwood is a neuron or a network of neurons in some part of your brain and they're sending a big cable down to, say, another part of your spinal cord down near which is controlling your foot, it would be something like that. And the thing connecting them is the axon. Essentially, if we think of the nerve ends in plugging it in into the wall, right? So that would be the periphery. But anywhere along there, we might connect a series of extension cords as power comes into the house, right, to get it out. 
So essentially what's happening is that these synapses are happening where extension cords are meeting peripheral cords, and then eventually these cords all go into the outlet or the periphery. So what we're talking about is a signal through a cable. And if you look at cables around your house, you might notice that they've got a covering around them, which is a layer of insulation. And what that does is it speeds up the conduction through the cable. Interestingly, our nerves also have the same thing, and that's called myelin sheath. Yeah, and importantly, unlike, say, the cables in your house, the cables in your body, they're alive and they require energy, so they need to be fed. And the clever thing about this myelin, this insulation, is that the cables get some of their food actually from the insulation, and the cell in the brain that makes up the wrapping, the myelin, is called an oligodendrocyte. It's a big, long word, but it's this cell that produces the electrical insulation, and it's a really important cell for MS. To bring the analogy home, essentially we have a power company. That would be maybe the CNS, so the brain or spinal cord. That information goes out through a series of cables and complex networks of cables, which are insulated to make sure that we bring that transmission across quickly and to where it's supposed to go. And our body has the same thing. That's known as myelin, which is comprised of these cells known as oligodendrocytes in the central nervous system. In the periphery, it's known as Schwann cells, which not only insulate and help transfer this information, but they also help feed and support the tissue or the neuron. And in MS, we target specifically the oligodendrocytes and not the Schwann cells. So you don't have an issue with the insulation of the peripheral nervous system, but more of the central nervous system. We talked about this myelin that insulates or the insulating material along these electrical cables, but it is a little more complicated. The nerves or the cables that are within the brain and the spinal cord, the myelin generated that wraps those cables is made by oligodendrocytes, and these cells are affected in the disease multiple sclerosis or MS. However, all of the myelin that's on the cables that come out of the spinal cord and go to the rest of the body... That myelin is produced by a different cell called Schwann cell, and those cells are unaffected by the disease multiple sclerosis, or not directly affected by the disease. We now have a reasonable understanding about what myelin is, what makes up a nerve, and what a neuron is. It might be useful to understand the basic pathophysiology or what's going wrong in multiple sclerosis from a myelin perspective. We talked about the oligodendrocytes being responsible for producing this myelin centrally, the way that blood gets to the central nervous system to feed it is a bit different. And there's a barrier. It's like a wall. And normally you have immune cells floating around your body. They're checking things out, making sure that everything's fine. And something goes wrong in MS where that wall breaks down and the immune cells that are normally looking at the things in your body get to look at your brain and your central nervous system, and in particular, these oligodendrocytes. And for whatever reason, those immune cells decide to start attacking them and breaking them down and stripping these cables of that insulation material that's around them. And that causes a whole bunch of issues, and essentially that's what's happening in MS. Extending this analogy a little bit further, in this case, the castle would be the CNS, so the brain and spinal cord. And this wall that's surrounding the castle is known as the blood-brain barrier. 
What it does is essentially have a gate, just like a castle wall would. This gate selectively lets certain molecules through, based on its size, its charge, and other properties. Under normal circumstances, the immune army that David just spoke about, it's marching outside the wall, but it doesn't have access because of its properties into the wall or through the blood-brain barrier. However, during infection or some other cause, basically what the theory is is that wall gets broken down as if cannonballs are firing at it. And because the wall gets broken down, this immune system army now has access into the central nervous system, and it can start attacking parts of the central nervous system, specifically these oligodendrocytes. So we've got this wall, which is the blood-brain barrier, and we know that when you have an infection or something goes wrong, that wall can get broken down. But there's this new emerging evidence as well that there are cells that are within the brain that can, they're a little bit sneaky, like spies. They can kind of let things through the wall that we didn't realise that they could. What you're saying is that there's a wall around the brain and that there's now some evidence showing that there's some sophisticated gatekeepers within the central nervous system that can change how permeable that wall is and let immune cells in or maybe even let cells out. Yeah, exactly. So traditionally we think of MS as something going wrong in the periphery. So the peripheral immune system, for some reason, decides that it's going to go and attack the central nervous system. But there's an alternate hypothesis that's out there at the moment that you might have damage centrally and the peripheral immune system gets called in. Now, in both cases, the peripheral immune system is absolutely essential to MS, but the root of the issue is still up for debate. And that's an outside-in versus inside-out sort of debate. Absolutely. Now that we understand, or more importantly, understand that we don't understand what's going on with MS, how does it present clinically? Because MS affects the central nervous system, it can have a wide variety of symptoms and it can affect each individual quite differently. This is because MS can affect each individually to a different extent and at different locations in the brain or the spinal cord. And in fact, it is because of this reason that MS is also known as the snowflake disease. Because, for those of you who may not be from North America, each snowflake is very different from the next. Really, MS is then a syndrome of multiple different diseases categorised by certain symptoms and signs and radiological findings. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Basically, with MS, we diagnose the disease based on how it presents and the symptoms that the patient presents with, as opposed to what is causing the disease. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. Part of the reason why we have such diffuse bits of injury is we were talking about that wall before. That wall, if you think about it, isn't so much like a wall right around a castle. Imagine it's like a labyrinth that goes through the castle. And in fact, where it is, is around every single blood vessel. So if a little gate gets leaky in one point or if it becomes easy to get through at some point, you might injure one part of the brain. But at the same time, you could have an injury in another part of the spinal cord or the brain that's completely in another place. And that makes these symptoms really tricky because one part of the brain might be involved in controlling your arm movements and the other part of your brain might be controlling how you feel. 
So this disease, I guess, is quite a tricky one for clinicians to really classify. It sounds as if the symptoms can be quite varied. So how, as a clinician, do you go about diagnosing a disease like MS? Diagnosing MS can be quite complicated, and because of that, we have a criteria called the McDonald Criteria, which basically helps us put together a patient's signs or symptoms using radiological evidence of disease, allowing us to come to a conclusion as to whether the patient has MS or is likely to develop MS. One of the most common symptoms that patients may present with is what we call optic neuritis. It's basically inflammation of the optic nerve, which is part of your central nervous system, and basically presents with pain or loss of vision in one eye. Clinically, it makes you think that that tissue is more susceptible, and maybe it is, but it's also really dependent on having lots of this myelin for its function. Whereas other parts of the brain may be a bit that's controlling your ideas about whether or not you might plan to go overseas in two weeks, that part of your brain is not filled with axons that are covered with myelin. So if there's a little bit of damage to the myelin there, it's much, much, much more difficult to see it in terms of a clinical symptom. So the optic nerve and other parts of your body where there's these cables which are heavily myelinated, like your spinal cord, these seem to be sites where we can really see clinical symptoms. It may be that, the, that they are susceptible more than other parts of the, the nervous system, or it may just be that we can see the symptom there. So there's a large amount of data flow through these really susceptible areas, like the optic nerve, because you're interpreting a huge amount of information, vision, and everything that you see that needs to go to the brain. So it's more susceptible to damage. It could be, yeah, it could be because of that, yes. So either the wall is weaker in the area that might be affected or there's more insulation present on the cable that we're referring to. And so it's being attacked at a greater rate and you're going to see more of those symptoms. Exactly. As we've already mentioned, myelin is around other neurons as well, including motor neurons. And so patients can also present with symptoms such as weakness in one of their limbs or clumsiness, dropping things or falling over more than usual. Other symptoms also include losing sensation or having numbness or pins and needles in their fingers or their toes. And also MS can present with some very general and vague symptoms. And these include things like depression, fatigue and memory loss. With regards to that depression, it's actually really interesting. Obviously, when you go through any sort of debilitating disease, people have changes to their mood. But in MS, the depression is out of proportion to the symptoms that patients have. And perhaps there's some sort of neurophysiological change happening within the myelin or the nerves that's perpetuating that depression. That's really interesting as well. So far, we've talked about a wide variety of symptoms associated with this breakdown in the wall between the central nervous system and the immune system. I've noticed in outpatient clinics that people seem to have intermittent symptoms that come and go. Yeah, exactly. So that's actually one type of MS. MS can be classified into three major types. The first is relapsing remitting MS, and that's actually the most common type of MS upon the first presentation. About 85% of individuals with MS are diagnosed with relapsing remitting, which basically means that patient will have some symptoms of MS, whether it's motor, sensory, 
And then these symptoms might either stabilise or actually remit, as in improve. The second type of MS is secondary progressive MS. This tends to be slightly more severe than the relapsing remitting type because at a certain point the patient's disease just continues to progress without any remission. The final and most severe form of MS is primary progressive MS and that's basically when patients have progressive disease or disease that doesn't relapse from when they're first diagnosed. If we summarise that, there's sort of three broad or the main categories, relapsing and remitting MS, and that's what the majority of people first present with, where they have periods of damage or periods of, of, of functional loss, and then they sort of recover a bit. These people, most of them will transition into secondary progressive disease where there's no periods of recovery or remission. And then there's this separate almost like a separate category of MS, which we call primary progressive disease, where patients come in and from the onset, they just continuously decline. On a physiological level, what's actually occurring in terms of relapsing remitting disease versus progressive MS? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. We know that inflammation underpins the disease. So the immune system, and remember earlier we talked about the peripheral immune system, somehow gets into the central nervous system and attacks these oligodendrocytes. Now, in relapsing and remitting MS, what we do know is when a patient comes in and is really in a bad state, if we give them something to dampen the immune system, they can recover function pretty quickly. And then for some reason the immune system stops attacking the central nervous system for a period. We don't know why. We'd love to know why. But many of our therapies that we have at the moment work to just dampen the immune system. So what's happening during that period when they're actually having some functional deficit? It's hard to untangle whether or not it's because the inflammation is disrupting nerve cells' ability to function. So nerve cells need glucose. And importantly, they need the ions in the fluid. So this is the stuff that has charge. All of these things that are in the fluid that are inside and outside of the nerve cells have to be kept in a really tight balance. If you change that balance, you change the function of nerve cells. And when you have inflammation, that changes. So we're not sure at the moment how to untangle that component from this other component, which is when you take away the oligodendrocytes and the myelin, you stop the electrical signal. So the two things are going on at the same time. Now, you mentioned that there's periods where there's recovery. So what we do know is that the brain has some capacity to replace oligodendrocytes, which is fantastic. This is an innate capacity that you have. But unfortunately, that replacement never matches up to the loss. So in time, you have this total net loss of that myelin. And remember earlier we talked about the myelin feeding axons? Another thing that happens to axons when you take the myelin off is they start to become pathological. It's almost like you transect them. We see transected axons in the tissue, and transection just means cut. They're cut, or they're broken, which means that there's also this continuous decline in the amount of myelin, these axons that are being damaged, and then, then the neuron connected to these axons starts to die. So we get this progressive degeneration that's going on in the background of these episodes of inflammation. And so there are these two things that are going on simultaneously. The inflammation, which is causing chaos at the moment, and then this progressive degeneration that really is causing loss of function that accumulates in time. 
if we go back to our analogy of a cable and insulation, if you have a piece of damage, you might be able to repair that insulation with some insulation tape for a little while. But there's a point at which the repair no longer matches the need of that cable. It's exactly right. And the hope one day is that we can actually identify a therapeutic compound to improve that replacement of myelin so that we stop this progressive decline that we see that happens in MS. So we have some very good options, therapeutic options for the inflammatory component. But at this stage, we only have a very, very small number of compounds that have made it to trial to actually address this loss of myelin or the replacement of myelin. And in the analogy of the cable, if you don't replace that insulation, eventually that wire rusts and it's no longer functional. And that's essentially what's happening in the progressive disease. Pretty much. That cable is becoming compromised. The cable gets damaged. And then once a cable gets damaged, the cell body of the nerve cell that's sitting somewhere else also becomes compromised because it requires to get nutrients and things like that transported back. And when you cut the cables of nerve cells, they also tend to die. So in relapsing remitting disease, it's thought to be caused by the inflammation at the time, which is why you treat it with anti-inflammatory drugs like steroids. Whereas the other stuff that's going on, you, you look at things that target the immune system itself. What's more is all the different risk factors for the disease seem to have something to do with either the immune system or the things that make myelin itself. So what's really interesting is one of the things that seems to have a big correlation with incidence of MS is how far away you live from the equator. So somewhere like Melbourne, where we are now, has very high incidence of MS because it's quite far from the equator. What's also really interesting is that you take your risk with you. So if you're born in Scotland and you travel from Scotland to Queensland... The risk goes with you. However, if you're born in Queensland early, 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 and you move to Scotland, you do the reverse, the opposite risk goes with you too. So there's this idea that exposure to vitamin D might have a role in the development of the immune system. Or maybe it also has something to do with the genesis of the the myelin-making cells themselves and how oligodendrocytes function. So it could be something to do with the immune system or it could be something to do with the susceptibility of the myelin-generating cells. So either you've got more attack or you've got weaker cells. Yep. The other thing that's really interesting is there's a whole lot of susceptibility genes that are linked to cells that function in the immune system. So there's key genes in the immune system's function that increase your risk of having MS which is one of the reasons why the scientific community thinks that it's an immune-mediated disease. Other demographics also seem to influence susceptibility to developing MS. Females seem to have a higher prevalence of getting the disease than males. At a, for relapsing, remitting, at least, females are three times more likely to develop MS than men. Whereas with primary progressive MS, there doesn't really seem to be a difference between women and men. And I guess this reflects some need for us to continue doing more research to try and understand how the fundamental pathophysiology between these clinically sort of rooted classifications exists. What's going on that's different underneath all of this? So you mentioned the McDonald criteria. If I were a patient going into the hospital... 
how exactly would you diagnose me with MS and what are the key things that you're looking for as a doctor? The key to diagnosing MS is that you need two distinct episodes that have been separated in space and time. And by this we mean the individual has had an episode of MS, whether it be weakness or a sensory change. It can be now, but also there needs to be evidence that there was disease at some other point in time in the past. And that's because many of the symptoms that we have related to MS can be caused by a wide variety of different origins. Exactly. When we're talking about space, we mean different parts of the brain have been damaged and that that damage in those different parts of the brain happened on different or happened at different points in along the person's life. And we can exploit this. So we talked earlier about that wall around the brain that allows certain molecules to pass or not pass. And so we can use that partially to help us with diagnosis. Uh, yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, we have a really fantastic tool, which is MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. And basically, this is a fancy scanner that looks at the way water molecules spin around. And from that can reconstruct an image in 3D of your brain. But what we can also do is we can inject something that's not harmful into a person. And that can be of the molecular size that would normally not get through the blood-brain barrier. But in an instance of MS or an, where there's one of these attacks, it can get past this leaky gate in the blood-brain barrier. So we can follow this dye in the brain and we can see the exact site at which it ends up locating. And then we can take a big scan of the whole tissue and have a look for other evidence that there was the attack on those oligodendrocytes and loss of myelin or demyelination. And there may be, in some patients, images that show us dormant or non-active lesions. So that happens some other time in another place. And at the same time, we can see something with this gadolinium in a site which is looking like a lesion, and we call that a gadolinium-enhanced lesion. And if we have those two things together, we know that there was this separation in space and time, or we can be confident that that may have happened. So sometimes for diagnosis of MS, it can take a while because that initial symptom isn't going to be an immediate diagnosis of MS. So what other clinical tests can you do, you know, blood tests or other things, to help in your diagnosis of MS? Yeah, we can use blood tests to, first of all, rule out any other disease that might be going on or infection and have a look at all the other organs as well. Or one of the important tests we can do is look at the cerebrospinal fluid, which is the fluid that sits around your brain and your spinal cord. We do this test to look to see if we can find any of those rogue immune army cells that might be attacking our central nervous system. Because the wall around the central nervous system usually prevents those cells from entering this CSF or cerebrospinal fluid. So if there's presence of these rogue immune cells, we know that something's caused their access to this location. It sounds like we actually don't know all of the things that cause MS. And it also sounds like diagnosing MS is pretty complicated. So once they are diagnosed or we're pretty sure of a diagnosis of MS, I'm interested to learn what treatments we can use in these cases. So as you said, it is really complicated and there's lots of different stages of the disease that you have to treat. 
as David mentioned before, when you have an acute relapse in hospital, you're given something called prednisolone, which is a steroid, which basically dampens down that acute inflammation. So you're given a high dose of that, often in a vein, so intravenously. And what that does is it's thought to dampen down that acute immune response. Now, in the relapsing remitting disease, there's been a vast revolution in in how it's been treated. So now there's something like 15 TGA-approved drugs for relapsing remitting disease, which are called disease-modifying drugs. And what they do is they decrease the relapse frequency. So when you have these symptoms that are coming and going, they decrease the frequency or the amount of times that those symptoms come and go. And it's thought that that will both decrease progression, but that hasn't been showed yet, but also improves how much the patient is suffering, which is, as a doctor, what you want to aim to do. So the way that they work is they target different parts of the army. So there's there's some cells called B cells, which are sort of like archers, and they make things and they send them off and they remotely target the different cells that they're targeting or, or in, in like bacteria or whatever it is. So there's drugs that directly inhibit those and, and cause those to die. There's drugs that target the sort of sword men that go in and directly kill the cells. There's drugs that stop the army getting in at all through the gates. There's also drugs that cause the army to stay back at the garrison, which are your lymph nodes. So they stop leaving the lymph nodes. And so it's a sort of multi-pronged approach that try and target the army at a whole lot of different spots. And that's been shown quite well to decrease the frequency of this relapse. And it's really revolutionised treatment of relapsing remitting disease and neurologists are quite excited about it. Does this mean that the patient's immune system, though, is less able to fight off normal infection? Yes, and unfortunately that's one of the, I guess, pitfalls of treating MS is if you're suppressing those immune cells or the army, then you're going to suppress it everywhere in the body. It's not just going to be selective for the brain. So another interesting thing about all these treatments that are available, which sort of reflects how variable the causes or the underlying pathophysiology of the disease is, is that some for some people, targeting the archers, the B cells, that works really well. For other people, targeting the gate works really well, or a combination of both works really well. But it's not the same. So when you are seeing your neurologist, they're making really difficult and complicated decisions about which combinations and which types of these drugs are are the best for you to be given to minimise or to try their best to minimise relapses and future disease events. So we talked about both this disease having two parts. One of those is managing the immune response or that army. But the other part is allowing time and space for these oligodendrocytes or myelin to regrow. Are there any therapies related to that? Well, there there aren't any therapies that you can receive at the moment as a patient, um, but there are therapies that are in trial. There's a few of them out there. And I mean, some of these therapies have come from places we don't, we wouldn't have originally expected. One is like a hay fever drug called clemestine, which has gone through a very small trial, but it looks like it helps these cells, these oligodendrocytes. There are floating around in your brain. Well, not floating around, but in your brain, there are these precursor oligodendrocytes, and they're there throughout your life. And it's been shown, there's some 
preliminary evidence that this particular compound, clemestine, helps them to produce more oligodendrocytes, and that may be a way to improve the remyelination process. And that's really exciting that we're starting to scratch that surface because ultimately we think to block that progressive decline, which is what's so bad for people, we need to stop the degeneration or replace the oligodendrocytes that are lost. So expanding our, our research and our search for uh, these kind of compounds is absolutely paramount. So there's a two-pronged approach for future management of MS. One is understanding the intricacy of how the immune system is destroying the brain and why the myelin is susceptible to damage. And the other is developing a cure, as it were, to regenerate the lost myelin so that people can you know, come back to their sort of pre-morbid function and, and be able to do the things that they used to do before they got the disease. I think what's fascinating about this entire podcast is that we often get told in the public that nerves control everything. But I think what we've discussed today is actually the support system of nerves or the myelin, oligodendrocytes and Schwann cells seem to be critical. And when things go wrong, particularly with the oligodendrocytes related to the myelin of the central nervous system, that's when we get symptoms and diagnosis related to MS or multiple sclerosis. That's all we have time for today. I want to thank my excellent interdisciplinary team for discussing this very complicated topic. As always, I want to remind you that relationships matter, at least the anatomical ones. Don't forget to head over to our website, askanatomist.com, for more episodes and links to resources. And follow us on Twitter. So if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, don't hesitate to ask anatomists and use the hashtag AnatQ.